talking about Jesus healing a blind man. And in general, the idea that Jesus gives sight to the blind. I believe we have a new memory verse. Let's uh, say it together as a group, please. Then Jesus spake again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, three weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' great declaration that he was the great I am. We saw the Pharisees' negative reaction, but their helplessness to do anything about it. And we saw how many times Jesus made I am statements in the New Testament, echoing the truth of that lesson. And we, we examined how a true understanding of his nature is essential for salvation. This week, we're going to be talking about a minor miracle followed by a major tumult. Pretty much right after declaring his divine nature and then slipping away from the stone-grabbing Pharisees, Jesus, we're told, went out of the temple and he chooses next to heal a blind man, resulting in his next confrontation with the Pharisees. And as usual, we'll be using readings by Alexander Scorby. Brother? And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation, sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How are thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, where is he? He said, I know not. So I'm going to ask you guys to do me a favor. There was a slide and a point I meant to bring in that I forgot. So before I go to the next scripture reading, just remind me. I have something else I want to talk about. So I don't miss it because I think it's a good thing to talk about. So Jesus and his disciples walk past a blind man on the side of the road. The disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was brought, uh, born blind? And this is a common misconception both then and, frankly, now, that it seems logical to the human mind that God would punish sinners through physical deformity. Someone who's born and there's something wrong with them, well, they must either have done something terrible or their parents must have done something terrible. This is not a scriptural idea, but it's a common idea. Now, what Jesus, he says, no, that's not the case. Now, the truth is that all disease, injury, deformity, malformation, mutations, birth defects, they're all the result of sin. But on a wholesale basis, not retail. 
Okay, God has judged this planet for sin, resulting in these problems, in these errors in the human genome, in these problems as a result of sin, disease, and everything else. But it's not an individual judgment on people. It's a general judgment on the world. And that's something we have to keep in mind. And as I said, Jesus corrects their misunderstandings. And he also says that he's here to work the works of the Father. And he references the reality that his time will soon be coming to an end. But while he's here, he is the light of the world. He then stoops down and makes clay out of his spittle and dirt. So he had to be fully off the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was entirely stone. There was no good place to get dirt. So he makes a clay, he puts it on the eyes of the blind man and instructs him to go to the pool, the pool Siloam. And it's south, I hope you can see this little red oval at the south there. The Siloam pool is in the lower city, the south part of Jerusalem. It's at a relatively low elevation compared to the Temple Mount. It's 375 feet below. And the, the name does mean sent. Um, I think in modern English, it would, it would be work better as conducted. Basically, this is a, a spring-fed pool that waters come through a, a tunnel that's cut from the spring to the pool. So the waters are conducted into the pool, and they collect there. And this was actually thought to be a common pilgrimage site for people coming to Jerusalem would start at this pool and then they'd perhaps ritually cleanse themselves and start the walk up 375 feet up to the temple. And the temple mount is here on the east side of the city, this, this large uh, trapezoidal shape with the temple in the middle. So Jesus probably came off that either down Robinson's Arch or through the Hulda Gates, encountered the blind man, put clay on his eyes, and told him to, to go further south there and wash. Now, the man's sight is restored, and people aren't sure it's him. Sometimes we only see the disability. I mean, if you walk past someone who has a deformity, you tend to see the deformity and maybe the rest of the features of the person just kind of fade out. No one is sure it's him. Some people say, well, it kind of looks like him, but he's so completely different looking with sighted than unsighted. And there, there, it's not entirely credible that he can see. But when he's asked how, he simply relates that a man named Jesus made clay, instructed him to wash, and now he could see. He doesn't know where Jesus is or even what he looks like, if you think about it. Why the mud? Jesus could have instantly healed the man. Whatever blindness could have been healed like that. Yet Jesus chose to play in the mud. Why? Well, first of all, you could see it as an act of faith. In the same way that the prophet told Naaman to go wash himself in the river. If the man didn't go and wash himself in Siloam, he would not have restored his sight. But also, <laughs> this is a thumb in the eyes of the Pharisees. Now, you might not see why unless you understand the history here. Remember that the Pharisees 
had a whole set of rules that they'd built up based on the oral tradition they believed came from Moses. And while the uh, third commandment says, I think it's the third, I hope it's not the fourth, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the Pharisees had built up an entire list of things you could not do on the Sabbath so that you kept it holy. And there were 39 of them in particular called the Mishnah. And they concerned common domestic activities, which you could not do on Sunday. The first 11 were around making bread. And the 10th out of that first 11 was kneading the dough. Now, as it happens, the words for dough and clay in Hebrew are the same. What Jesus was doing was kneading the clay on the Sabbath day. He was intentionally violating the Mishnah. It wasn't just that he was healing on the Sabbath. He's violating their rules on the Sabbath. Now, I want to I step aside from that idea. We're going to talk very much about that idea in a moment. But I want to step aside over here and talk about the blind man. This man was blind from birth so that the glory of God could be made manifest. Do you suppose this man resented going through 20, 30, 40 years of his life blind? That God would do this to the man for no good reason? That man's probably in heaven today, almost certainly. Do you suppose he resents the years of his blindness? Consider, it's estimated that at the time of Christ, the population of Jerusalem was about 80,000 people. If we look back through the Bible, there are probably only about 100 people in Jerusalem that had some sort of a meaningful contact with Jesus. Okay, 100, and that's a high number. It's probably less than that. 100 people in Jerusalem encountered Jesus in a meaningful way out of 80,000. That's one in 800. This man, because the blindness that he was cursed of by God, got to meet Jesus. You suppose he's salty about that? We look at the situations God puts us into and we get a little grumpy about them sometimes. Consider the situation this man was in for how much of his life. But because God had made him blind from birth, he got to meet Jesus, be healed by Jesus, and be saved by Jesus. Keep that in mind next time you're grumping about your situation. But let's continue. Brother? They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. 
Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, He is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind... Now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, Herein is a marvellous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshipper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Oh, what a wonderful passage. The formerly blind man is brought before the Pharisees and tells his tale. And there's a problem with his tale. You see, on one hand, the Pharisees know Jesus can't be godly because he broke their Mishnah rules. And since they were the appointed keepers of Judaism by God, well, their rules had to be right. So no one from God would break their rules, but he had to be godly to do the things he's doing. So we have something called cognitive dissonance. They're trying to hold two ideas that contradict each other in their heads at the same time. And it gives you a headache. It's very, it, it, it is difficult for an intelligent person to simultaneously believe two contradictory things. So they get into an argument in the council. One, some people are, are leaning on A, he can't be godly. Other people are leaning towards B, he must be godly. And they ask their witness what he thinks. He believes Jesus to be a prophet. So the Pharisees resolve their, resolve their conflict by deciding he's lying. If he's lying, there's no problem. Because the man didn't do anything. This, this Jesus didn't do anything. So they consult with his parents who confirm, yes, this is our son, and he has always been blind. But they will not say anything about how he came to see because of fear of being excommunicated. 
Okay, literally, when they say put out of the synagogue, the Pharisees had agreed that if anyone confessed Christ as Messiah, they're out. Out of the synagogue is out of the entire religious life of the Jews. They can no longer come in every Saturday. They're excluded from the most central facet of Jewish life. These men who were given the responsibility by God to be shepherds of the flock are kicking out the lambs. This is not good. And the parents say, he is of age, ask him, passing the buck. Because if they say anything, they're worried that they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue and basically kicked out of social life. Every, all their friends will stop talking to them. The Pharisees tell the blind man, give God the praise. We know this man is a sinner. In other words, credit God with your miraculous recovery because this man, Jesus, cannot have been the source. He's a sinner. He broke Mishnah. The sighted man responds, all I know is he made me see. The Pharisees are too complacent, too stuck in their Mosaic oral tradition, this idea of the rules, to see the reality. They're incapable of getting past their spiritual baggage. And they had a, they had a lovely seven-piece set of baggage <laughs> that they knew was right. The sighted man the beautiful thing about this passage, about the sighted man before the Pharisees, is then and today we have an unfortunate tendency to think that because someone has a disability, they are somehow less. This sighted man demonstrates very clearly before the Pharisees that he has a good grasp of basic logic and reasoning and argumentation skills. This guy's no dummy. Not at all. He may have been blind, but he could clearly hear and he could clearly think. And he did something with his life while he was begging. He clearly developed his mind. He says, it's amazing. You don't know where he's from, but he opened my eyes. He says, this has never happened before in the history of the world that someone born blind has been given sight. He says, God won't hear the prayers of sinners, but God heard this man's prayer, so he must be from God. And he destroys the position of the Pharisees right then and there. And he stands up for what has happened to him. The Pharisees' response you who were born in sin, that common misconception that if you're born blind, you must have been born in sin, dare to instruct us? This is an argument from authority, the single weakest argument in all of logic, if you, if you set aside uh, the Bible, which is the ultimate authority. If you're not referencing the Bible, if you're just arguing from your own personal authority, <laughs> you, you got nothing but hot air in your arguments. That's all the Pharisees had. 
And they cast him out of themselves and of the synagogue. That's it. He's excommunicated, cut off. A man who for, I'm going to pick a number, 30 years has lived outside society because he's blind, can now see, but is cast out of society because of his stand on who this man who healed him was. So he goes from one class of outsider to another class of outsider. But let's keep reading. Brother? Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words, and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Jesus hears that the Pharisees had cast out the sighted man. So Jesus seeks him out. Remember, this man doesn't know what Jesus looks like. And he's got somewhat limited resources. He's no longer a part of society. He's not easily going to be able to find Jesus. Jesus finds him. Jesus stands with those who stand for him. And he asks the man, do you believe on the Son of God? The man says, who's that? Once Jesus explains, once the sighted man understands, he immediately declares his faith and worships Christ. But then Jesus' next words, the last three verses we looked at, are not for him, not for the sighted man, but for his, for his disciples and for the crowd around. Jesus says that he came to apply a new revelation of God's standard. Now, God's standard had never changed. God's standard had always been, do it my way. And Abraham, called out of Ur, did it God's way. Moses, called out of shepherddom to lead the children of Israel, did it God's way. David, called to be king of Israel, did it God's way. But along the line, Israel had lost their way and had decided to do it their way, which was not God's way. You know, whether you want to blame the Pharisees, but it's a history of Israel going their own way. God sent Jesus down to re-reveal... It wasn't a new message. It was some new information, but it was the same old idea, do it God's way. And that's the standard that Jesus applied when he came to the earth. Do it God's way or, or don't. Jesus came to reveal truth to those who were blind. In the same way that he healed this man of his physical blindness, Jesus came to relieve the spiritual blindness of the Jews. 
to, re- to give sight to the blind and to reveal the blindness of those who insist they see. The Pharisees who are there with Jesus say, is that us too? Are we blind? The real question is, do you think we're blind? And they're told, since you think, you, since you believe you can see, you are hopelessly lost and blind. You are blinded to your own lost condition. We see three reactions to Christ in this story. We see the blind man who responded in faith to Christ's instructions. Go wash. And then stood in simple faith against the threats of man. We see his parents who avoided taking a stand after witnessing a miracle because they feared the disapproval of man. And we see the Pharisees who rejected the miracle and the teachings of Christ because it went against their beliefs and their baggage. The focus of this lesson is spiritual blindness. If we look back in Isaiah, God instructed Isaiah. He said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. The Jews had a long history of confident rejection of God's point of view. Then Jesus, in Matthew 13, 13, Chapter 13, verse 13 through 15, repeats this prophecy. I can't read that one. Therefore speak I unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. This is the, Jesus says, this is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. Spiritual truths can only be revealed by God. And if you will not listen, and if you will not see, you're willfully blind. You're willfully deaf. And it's not just here. We can turn to John chapter 12. But though he had done... Now, this is at the very end of Jesus' ministry. The Matthew passage is the beginning of the second year of his ministry. This is the very end of his ministries. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake. Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord be revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted. And I should heal them. The Jews saw the signs, but refused to believe. And then Paul... Same drum, Acts 28, towards the end of Paul's ministry now. When they had agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Esaias the prophet unto our fathers, saying, 
Go unto this people, and saying, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, they will hear it. Paul is now making the same point well after the death of Christ to the Jewish leaders. When God tells us something once, is it important? When God tells us something twice, is it more important? We're running four and counting here, guys. This is a big deal. Big spiritual truth. And it applies to us as much as it did to them. We can be willfully blind. We can be willfully deaf. Every time we refuse to read the Bible that's in our house, guess what we're being? And i got to point that finger at myself as more than anybody else. I know my bad habits. We have a reading here in Corinthians. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen. Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, is trying to explain the differences between the old law of the, the Old Testament and the new spiritual life in Christ. And he contrasts the two covenants, 
The old covenant written in stone, the new covenant written on hearts. The old covenant testimony of the letter of the law, the testimony of the Spirit of God. A ministry of death because the law just told you how you were not good enough. But the ministry of the Spirit, Christ has taken care of it for us. The old covenant is a ministry of condemnation. You are not good enough. The new covenant is the ministry of righteousness. Jesus was good enough for you. Yay. The old covenant coming to an end. It ended at the cross. The new covenant, permanent. The old covenant veiled still, seen through a glass, as in, wow, and there's so much baggage there. Seen as in a glass. They're talking about a mirror. But remember that our mirrors did not exist back then. And the best mirror was typically polished brass. And polished brass is not a perfect reflective surface, and it often is wavy. So you don't get a very good image. And so the idea that seen as in a glass is seen as a poor reflection. Even rich people who had mirrors made of polished silver, still it wasn't as good. Our mirrors, which are made with float glass, the back of which is perfectly flat, and then aluminum is evaporated onto the back surface, so that you get, for no money at all, I mean, less, well less than a dollar, you can get a cheap little mirror that would have been the miracle of the ancient world. And that, that veiled image, seen as in an imperfect mirror darkly, is now seen in a perfect reflection of the Spirit. And, and Paul says, as we clearly see the revealed Spirit, we can become changed to its likeness. And then reading another passage right after this, continuing on in Corinthians. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul continues now, arguing that we should now live honestly within the truth of this new covenant. But this new covenant is hidden from some because they allow Satan to blind themselves to its truth. But we have received the truth from God. And so the entire lesson from the healing of the blind man, making him the sighted man, through these comments on the persistent spiritual blindness of the Jews, through to 
Paul explaining many of these same ideas to the Corinthian church. It's the same message. Jesus is the light of the world. He has come into the world to relieve our spiritual blindness. But so many people prefer to believe they are sighted. We are not blind. We see just fine, they say as they walk into a pillar. Thud. That didn't hurt. I'm fine. And we, we just have to be cautious about areas in our life where we persist in maintaining that our point of view is better than God's. So, do you know any people who think they have spiritual sight but are looking to the wrong source for understanding? How might we approach them with the truth of the gospel? Oh, it's a lovely question. Anyone want a piece of it? Richard, you look like you're chomping at the bit back there, brother. Richard, I don't think anybody heard that. Would you mind saying that again? There's a lot of cults in America that could be reached with the light, but I'm not sure they'll accept the light. They, they, Mormons for one, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses for others. They, they certainly prefer their comfortable untruths. Yeah. Brother. 